We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. He is the star of the show, and the character that he plays, be it hero or villain, is expected to do two things. Score goals and spit fire. And let's be honest, Zlatan has done both incredibly well during his time with the Los Angeles Galaxy in Major League Soccer. He is the biggest star in MLS. But... Maybe that time is coming to an end. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. We look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking a potential Zlatanless MLS question mark in our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy's going down a uh, Copa Libertadores warm hole. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about Greg Berhalter's letter to the fans. In our back three, we'll talk about Pulisic and Dest and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy. A soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you today? I'm coming to you from across the country yet again over here in the uh, great city of Atlanta, Georgia. How are you, my friend? I am good. I am holding down the fort here in Los Angeles. It is just Alex and I uh, in the studio, which, by the way, uh, has undergone another change. They've moved where the... uh, uh, table is where we do the podcast from, so you're in for a surprise when you make it back. But uh, how's it going on the road? I can't wait. It's going on. It's it's going great. We're really excited about this um, Atlanta versus uh, Seattle game that we will be broadcasting on Wednesday night uh, in the semifinals here, if you will, of uh, MLS playoffs. It will be for the Eastern Conference Championship, I guess, if you want to get technical about it. But uh, I want to make sure that you and yours uh, are safe when it comes to the fires, because obviously we have a lot of people and friends uh, and family out there. Uh, everything okay from your end? So far, so good. But it is getting a little close for comfort. Yep, yep. I mean, the, the Getty Center and the and that whole uh, pass over there is very, very close. You can see the smoke. Uh, I know when I flew out today, there were already fires and closures on the uh, on the big freeway. So if you are in the Los Angeles area or anywhere in California that's uh, just being devastated right now by these fires, uh, I hope and pray that you are are, are safe. Uh, and I hope and pray that we can get past this and uh, get back to the, uh, the the rebuilding. All right, Mossy, you ready uh, to uh, light this candle? Probably not the best uh, choice of words given what I just said, but you know what? It's what we do. Yep. All right. 
As you know, each and every week we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. Now, I don't know about you, but I love Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I love him because he gets it. He gets that he's in the entertainment business. Now, not only does he get it, he embraces it, he uses it, and he is fueled by it. He is the star of the show, and the character that he plays, be it hero or villain, is expected to do two things. Score goals and spit fire. And let's be honest, Zlatan has done both incredibly well during his time with the Los Angeles Galaxy in Major League Soccer. He is the biggest star in MLS. But maybe that time is coming to an end. When asked about his future after losing in the playoffs to arch-rival LAFC, Zlatan said, quote, If I stay, then MLS is good because the whole world will watch it. If I don't stay, nobody will remember what MLS is, end quote. You feel that? That's a trigger. And that is a master provocateur with yet another direct hit. It's designed in equal parts to anger and amuse. There's just enough truth to make it plausible, and there's just enough bombast to make it laughable. But however you see it, you can't help but react. That is the genius of Zlatan. Yes, the MLS show will go on even without Zlatan. His impact on the league is undeniable, but it's not essential. One need only look at what Major League Soccer was when David Beckham left back in 2012 and what the league looks like now going into 2020. While certainly not the personality that Zlatan is, Beckham was a much bigger star. MLS survived the loss of David Beckham, and it thrived. And while he will not soon be forgotten, MLS will most certainly survive the loss of Zlatan. All right, Mossy, there is my uh, State of the Union. As you heard, it focuses on Zlatan. Can you envision, well, you can envision it, but what does that vision look like if Zlatan decides not to come back to MLS? Is it as bleak and is it as uh, tundra-esque as Zlatan has made it out to be if he's not here? Well, first off, shout out to John Champion, who was in the midst of a soliloquy about this being... uh potentially Zlatan's farewell, right as he grabbed his crotch and champion without breaking stride or even changing his voice intonation, weaved the crotch grabbing into his spiel. That was very nicely done. It was one of the memorable moments from an eventful post game, which also included Bob Bradley's uh, interview. But listen, Zlatan saying that if he leaves, everyone is going to forget MLS exists is very much on brand because Zlatan has spent two years in MLS, never missing a chance to remind us all that he's too good to be in MLS, and he's essentially doing us all a favor by being here. I've found those comments tedious at times, but listen, he does back it up on the field. Even on Thursday, uh, he scored a goal. He had a nice assist to Pavon, should have had an assist to Alessandrini. The Galaxy lost because they turned in one of the worst defensive performances I've ever seen. And that's kind of been the story of Latan's two years here. He's held up his end of the bargain. He's been phenomenal from an individual standpoint. But he caught a couple of years here in which the Galaxy weren't good enough to capitalize on having him. So, yeah, he would be a loss from a star power standpoint. But, no, I mean, life moves on, as you pointed out. Uh, other even bigger stars have come and gone uh, from this league, and MLS continues to grow. So, you know, I don't think it would be devastating. Well, as you mentioned, there, there's a lot of stuff that happened in that LA Galaxy LAFC game, and we'll get to, we'll get, get to all of it because it's worth digging into. But with regards to Zlatan uh, once again, uh, 
I don't what what I one thing that that was I guess it shouldn't surprise me anymore because it's Zlatan, but the level of consternation and and irritation. My good friend uh, Brian McBride, I, I watched him just go off, and he 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 seemed emotionally and physically hurt simply by the suggestion of Zlatan. And look, I, I this comes from a good place, and you are you are listening uh, or watching. Uh, somebody right now that wears his uh, Major League Soccer heart on his sleeve and his American Soccer on his sleeves. And when people take pokes at it, which is very easy to do at times, I get it. We love to def- to, to defend it. And, it. and it shows up our, as I've talked about before many times, our insecurities and our inferiority complex that, that we have. But to, specifically coming from Zlatan, it's almost as if it's it it now carries less weight because of the character and that personality and that role that he is playing as opposed if it came from somebody somebody else i mean when I don't know Wayne Rooney, which which certainly isn't the character, the personality that Zlatan is, but when he earlier this year said actually said something about the travel conditions, for example, in Major League Soccer, it, it, it almost in a certain way took off much, it took took on much more gravity because of the fact that he's not constantly saying these outlandish and, and bombastic type of things. Would you agree? Yeah, I definitely think there's something to that. A Zlatan shtick, it's amusing, but it also makes it where you don't always take what he says that seriously. I will say on Zlatan's future, I mentioned uh, Boca Juniors a couple of weeks ago. Napoli have emerged as a possibility. Carlo Ancelotti admitted in a press conference recently that they're interested in him. And Zlatan himself said that after watching the Maradona documentary, it intrigued him about playing for Napoli. Uh, so we're not the only ones that love that documentary. Zlatan might base a career decision off of it. But, you know, there are Galaxy fans I speak to who think that Zlatan doesn't fit Scalotto's style and that uh, Scalotta would not shed a tear if Latan left because he would actually get to set up the team the way he wants. That's fine, but that, that would be a lot of production they would have to replace. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I completely agree with that. And, and I have no inside knowledge or anything like that, but I think that Guillermo Barra-Scalotto is in a certain way just, just treading water here until Zlatan goes, at which point he can do what he wants to do. But Zlatan's such an overpowering person and character and player, and the production level from any coach's perspective, look, if you, if you lose him, you lose, he scored, what, 30 goals this year? I mean, you lose that, you got to be able to replace that. Now, maybe you replace it in multiple multiple players and the team becomes better even you know the addition by uh, addition by subtraction when it comes to it you mentioned the performance the other day and it, and it just mirrored uh, and so it shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody how awful this team has been from a defensive standpoint. They have plenty of parts from an attacking standpoint that I think they can build on. But in my estimation, I mean, that from the goalkeeper to the uh, to the back four, uh, to mostly the defensive type of, uh, of players that they have are just not good enough. And they might as well uh, just clean house. But I do agree with you that Shkiloto right now looks at this as... Uh, this could possibly be good, even, and, and I'll, I'll take the hit right now because it, it makes it makes my life uh, it makes my life a whole lot easier going forward right now. And that Bob Bradley and the L- and LAFC were finally able to overcome this hump that has been such a weight that is in the form of an LA Galaxy with Zlatan Ibrahimovic should should be no surprise. Eventually, you're going to find a way that it came at the most important po- point for an LAFC team, given their talent and their ability, and obviously playing at home and the worst possible point for uh, LA Galaxy. I don't think that that should be uh, that, that should be a surprise to anyone. 
And one last point on this Zlatan thing. Uh, there's not a lot of European football in the rundown today, so I'll, I'll weave that in here because I do think it's relevant. Every Mauro Icardi goal is pushing Edinson Cavani towards MLS. Cavani has one more year left on his PSG contract. They acquired Icardi on a one-season loan with an option to buy permanently. He has settled in very well. He's playing great this past weekend. He had two goals and a 4-0 win over Marseille. Mbappe got the other two. And all signs are pointing to PSG signing Icardi permanently and letting Cavani go after the season. And Cavani does want to come to MLS. Now, so far, he's been linked with Beckham in Miami. But if the Galaxy were to lose Latan and decide they need to replace him with another star center forward, that is a direction they could go. It is a direction. It's, it's look, he is no, <laughs> he is no Zlatan in, uh, I, I, it has to be said, I think in just talent and obviously personality. And we can argue about the talent part of it, but we can, I don't think anybody's going to argue about the personality. Zlatan's worth the price of admission. I, it's why I enjoy watching it. It's why, you know, what I talked about in the uh, in the State of the Union. Now, now, keep in mind, though, that from a Galaxy perspective, I think that they're, they're trying to they're trying to be very very careful here because it's not that Zlatan necessarily wants to go someplace else in the world uh, or even leave the galaxy but if the galaxy say all right listen the Zlatan time is done it would not surprise me in the least and if i was another team and uh, in the leadership of another team it would not surprise me at the least if another mls team came in and now you're dealing with a guy who was once yours that you said no, coming back to make you pay uh, with vengeance on his mind and the big personality that he is, and is that something that you want to deal with? Now, that's not a reason to sign Zlatan. If you truly believe that you can continue to function as the LA Galaxy with with Zlatan in your midst, then you do that. I think it's a no, it's a no-brainer. But if they don't, don't don't think for a second that there aren't MLS teams coming into the league next year or existing MLS teams that will jump at the chance to sign Zlatan. What if he went over to LAFC? Uh, Diamande went out and all of a sudden Zlatan was L- uh, over at LAFC. Uh, stranger things have happened. Uh, you know, Bob Bradley loves a project, but um, I, I would I'll really, be, I'll really be interested to see what ultimately happens to Zlatan if he continues to MLS, where it is, or if he goes overseas. Now, you mentioned some other things that happened during that game, not the least of which was just a, a viral and, as far as I'm concerned, a historic and an incredible moment after the game with Bob Bradley being interviewed on the field by our friend and colleague over there at ESPN, Sebastian Salazar, who, you know, the way the question was worded, worded we can, you know, we can talk about. And he may, may have, and he probably should have done it, uh, worded it in a different way, or maybe not, depending on how you, you see it. But ultimately, it elicited a reaction from Bob Bradley. And basically what Sebastian was, say, was saying, and I, I will paraphrase it here, was that at times in the past, Carlos Vela has been called to task uh, for and taken a task for not performing in big games and stepping up in big situations. And he certainly has done that this year and did that the other day against the Galaxy. And Bob Bradley's veins started to pulse and he did not take kindly to that question and immediately came back. And it was this incredibly beautiful, awkward moment between Sebastian Salazar, the uh, on-field interviewer, and Bob Bradley, and Bob Bradley took he said, uh, you know, who 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 says that about him? And <laughs> ultimately, it left Bob Bradley telling Sebastian Salazar to get lost in this what will be without a doubt a famous moment and a famous quote from uh, from Bob Bradley. And he stormed off. He even turned around at a certain point. Great camera work from ESPN to capture Bob possibly coming back. He thought better of it and then continued on. It was just a a wonderful moment. And these. 
So now the debate was, was this an appropriate question? I, I have no problem with the question, to be quite honest with you. I also have no problem with Bob Bradley coming back at Sebastian Salazar, him defending the, uh, this player. And you can agree or disagree you know, with what the question, what the question was, but I don't think anybody's going to disagree that this was great television. This was great entertainment. This was as important as the result on the field, the kicking of the ball, the personalities clashing on the field. This was part of the entire package, which made what all of these playoffs have been, but in particular, this historic type of game that was billed as the biggest game in Major League Soccer playoff history, it made it that much more special and that much more spicy. What were your thoughts, Mossy, after you saw that interview? I had no issue with the question whatsoever at how it was formulated. I thought Sebastian was actually trying to give Bob Bradley a chance to laud Carlos Vela, and he just threw in a little bit of context at the top. To me, the tone of it was not malicious at all, and Bob Bradley could have been, well, I don't know who's been criticizing him, but I know for us he's been great, and then gone on to talk about you know how much he loves Carlos Vela, and it would have been fine. It was surprising how much that hit a nerve with him. Uh, uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, it, it was very entertaining, so I'm not complaining at all. <laughs> it, look, I... I, I've, look, I've known Bob for a long time, and we agree and we disagree on different things, and we've gone back and forth, and we've butted heads, and we have a long, long history together. I have no problem with Bob Bradley or anybody taking issue with a question that I ask or somebody else asks or coming back, uh, coming back at me and having a conversation or a debate or screaming and yelling or, or doing any, of, any of, that, uh, of that kind of stuff. But you're right. It was strange in that I think the intention, and I, I haven't talked to Sebastian, but I'm, I'm assuming the intention was, like you said, to frame it, but then give Bob Bradley to extol the virtues of this player, and he went completely the opposite direction. And I think in that moment, it, uh, to his players, and I think to LAFC fans, it was wonderful because he was standing up for somebody who was undoubtedly had a, a great year, and that's what you want from a coach. But I think from a lot of other people, it was... It was why is Bob Bradley, who just won a huge, huge game, being so defensive and, and being so combative about it? But guess what? That's what Bob Bradley is. Bob Bradley is about emotion and about passion. And that does, in no way does that mean he doesn't have the, the chops when it comes to the X's and O's and stuff like that. But this is, this is a guy who talks about culture and talks about the group and talks about an understanding and a respect within the group that at times people don't see from the outside. And he'll talk about the circle and being part of the circle and all that kind of stuff. And that I think that came out in, in a way that maybe people didn't understand and won't understand. And maybe that will reflect poorly on Bob Bradley in that moment. But as I said before, you know, and I mentioned in the State of the Union, Zlatan knows he's in the entertainment business. We are in the entertainment business, and that was sheer entertainment. As a matter of fact, it's what we need more of. It is a performance, and it is something that gets people talking, and lots of people were talking about this moment and debating it, going back and forth, and people came down on Sebastian's side, and people came down on Bob Bradley's side, and people came down on the fact that I don't care who, who was right or wrong, I just love it and I want to see it. And there were others that were more traditional and said, I, 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 this is ridiculous from both sides, and I can't believe that this is what we've gotten to. So it was it was a wonderful moment, as I, as I said. It was a it was a wonderful night. You mentioned the uh, the bad the bad defense, and look, LA Galaxy's got to got to be able to fix that. I still think right now, LAFC would be the odds-on favorite. They host Seattle. I still have LAFC going through against uh, against Seattle, and then hosting the winner of Atlanta 
and Toronto, which I have being Atlanta. So Atlanta cr- going across the uh, across the country to LAFC. Uh, anything else, Mossy, about this incredible game and all these moments surrounding it? Uh, nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a seven-day free trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again. Time for uh, Mossy Makes the Case, my good friend David Mossy, casing for something this week. What is it? My case is that we're about to find out just how brightly the spotlight can shine on South America. The Copa Libertadores final is set. It will be defending champions River Plate against Flamengo in Santiago, Chile, and a big decision by Conmebol is about to come under scrutiny. Three years ago, Conmebol recognized that while Europe's superiority is inevitable, the gap in global relevance between the UEFA Champions League and the Copa Libertadores had reached an absurd level, and they had to breathe some life back into the Libertadores. So they instituted a number of format changes, everything from adding more teams to extending the competition to last the entire calendar year. But the most interesting change is one that only went into effect this season, and it's divided opinions. They changed the final from a two-legged affair to a one-off neutral venue contest. I say divided opinions because there are those who argue that the best thing South American football has going for it is the passion of the fans, and you are mitigating that somewhat. Anyone who's ever been to a Champions League final will tell you it can be a sterile environment because only a fraction of the people in attendance are fans of any one team. The counter-argument is that two-legged affairs can be very cagey, the second game is largely conditioned by the result of the first, And as we've seen with the MLS playoffs this year, there's something more exciting about that one-game do-or-die scenario. Ultimately, this is going to be judged by how big it feels. Conmebol couldn't have asked for a better matchup, a Brazilian giant against an Argentinian giant, two teams that play attractive, attack-minded football. Nobody in South America needs convincing that this is a game worth watching, but I'll be very curious to see if Conmebol's big showcase can command the global spotlight. Interesting, Mossy. Okay, so you mentioned, obviously, the, the single-game, uh, winner-take-all, winner-go-home uh, type of format that we've been so impressed with and has really, I think, ignited MLS playoffs in a way that we haven't seen in the past. So, uh, and I want to make sure, I, I think I remember this from a couple uh, pods ago, so that the that the game is in, uh, it's in Maracanã, right? Uh, no, Conmebol announced recently the, the uh, that next year's final will be at the Maracanã. This one is in Santiago, Chile. So just to give a little context, I, I'm, by the way, in favor of the neutral venue final. But just to play devil's advocate, the Stadio Nacional holds 48,000 people, and Flamengo and River Plate have been allocated 12,500 tickets each. So that's what you're going to have for this game. While you could have had 80,000 Flamengo fans at the Maracanã, 70,000 River Plate fans at the Monumental. So that's prompted folks like Andrew Downey, who's a journalist who covers South American football, to say this was an own goal by Conmebol. He's staunchly against this neutral venue. What, what do you make of it? But why do, you, why do you like the neutral venue then? Because I know that 
this whole notion that the, what South American football has going for it is the passion of the fans. I get that, but uh, I worry more about the football. And I think there's a better chance of it being a great game, both teams going for it, if it's a one-off neutral venue as opposed to two legs uh, where each game you'll have an away team that's sort of you know adopting a bit of a more conservative strategy. And like I mentioned, the, the second game could be con- completely conditioned by the first. If, you know, say the first leg was in Buenos Aires and River Plate won by a couple of goals, and that affects the way they play in the second leg. I, I like the idea of a big spectacle, this one big showcase final. And, you know, and, and you know, it's funny. I mentioned uh, that this is the first year of it. You sort of inadvertently had it last year because Boca and River played to a 2 all draw at La Bombonera. The away goals rule was not an effect. So the first leg ending in a draw meant we were essentially going to be starting from scratch in the second game. Then the incident happened. The second leg didn't take place until a month later in Madrid. Felt completely disconnected from the first match. Had all the feel of a one-off neutral venue final, but that was a crazy set of circumstances, and it was Boca River, so it was an outlier in many respects. This year is going to be the first test case of what this is really going to feel like moving forward. My goodness. Okay, so wait. You're saying that only the final, though, is at a neutral venue? Correct. It's essentially the same as the Champions League, where all the knockout rounds are home and away, okay, two-legged right, affairs, right. so, and now the final right, used to be two-legged also, and now it's, a, it's one game. Okay, but to get back to your point then, if you were to go to one-off type of things throughout the throughout the tournament, would that help the tournament? Would it increase the the uh, the entertainment factor? But more importantly, in MLS, when we're talking about this, the advantage in the home game is given to the higher seed, and so therefore it's a direct result of your performance in a in the regular season. So how would you if you did it where everyone was like that, would you want would you want that to happen? Number one, or do you think it's okay the way the way that it is? But if you did that, how would you stipulate who gets to host and who is who? I guess would be the higher seed. Yeah, I suppose it would be based on group stage performance. I'm okay with the way it is now. I'm okay with every other round being two legs, but having the final be a one-off neutral event. Maybe that's the traditionalist in me talking. I know it's been a lot of fun in MLS having every round be one game. But by the way, you've still had it be in uh, a home te- home team stadium. So you, you still get that crowd element if you do it that way. I know. So, I mean, this whole debate over the final is this whole issue of it being in a neutral venue and it being a sterile environment and you mitigating the, the whole crowd aspect of it. So it is an interesting debate. Yeah, I can I, see I, both sides. I, I guess I'm just debating that the, the two-game format in general as to whether this, this tradition that's been around for a long time is actually the right way to go in any in any situation. Does it does it really lend itself to having the best possible game? And you mentioned a bunch of things that happen, and it's absolutely true. You you pull your punches. You at times recognize that you can live to fight another day when you have those when you have those two games. And the first game uh, is absolutely affected by the fact that you have that uh, that you have that second game. The choices that you made, the tactical choices that you made, the personnel choices that you made, the uh, the way that you approach a game is undoubtedly affected because you know you have that sec have you se- have that second game so but but in general you're still in favor whether it's Copa Libertadores or 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 anything else of having the home and away type of situation yeah in the prior rounds yeah like i said maybe that's just a traditionalist in me talking uh, it's what i'm used to but uh, yeah that that would be a little bit too radical to me if competitions like the Champions League and the Libertadores went to a one game format in every single round 
So I, I'm fine with the way they have it now. I think they've settled into a, a good format. I mean, is this going to be like appointment television for you? Is it going to be sort of grab the soccer world's attention like that? I mean, it's, it's interesting. That's sort of what they're going for. They want to create this big spectacle. Of, you know, we'll see if it works. Yeah, yeah. Look, I know they're, you're, you're trying to make, a, you're trying to make a, a Super Bowl, but it gets right back to the, what you said. You know, one of the attractions and uh, one of the assets that this is being built around is that culture and is that atmosphere that you are, in essence, part of what you're tuning in for is that. And if that goes away because of a neutral environment and it, it mutes it to some extent, then you're missing <laughs> the very essence of what makes this or has made this thing excitement in the first place. And you're missing it even within a tournament, for example, this year, where you had it earlier on in the tournament, and then it completely and then it completely goes away. And you know, I know I'm not. I'm just like I said. I'm just thinking about uh, all of these things because even in in MLS playoffs, people have asked me, is it is it really is it maybe it's just this anomaly or maybe it's just the soccer gods have said this is just going to be a great year. Is it really contingent and directly related to the fact that the playoff format has changed or not? I still think all things being equal, if I could say I want to watch a tournament where you have one-off games, win or go home, as opposed to home and away, uh, I think I'm I'm thinking I'm going to take in the I'm taking the one game. But I'm also not putting myself necessarily in the shoes and shirt of a supporter or of a city or of a club that wants to have that moment to celebrate with their team at home, which you get when you have uh, that home in a way. And just a couple of uh, big picture points on this final. It's still a month away. It's November 23rd. So when the game gets closer, I'll really break it down. But uh, Boca fans are losing their minds right now because they always had bragging rights over River thanks to their superior continental record. Not long ago, it was 6-2 Boca when it came to Libertadores' titles. And River are now one win away from making it 6-5. If River win this game, it would be their third Libertadores title since 2015, having eliminated Boca in all three of those campaigns, including beating them in the final last year. And the man that's orchestrated all this is Marcelo Gallardo, who's an exceptional coach. And I'm wondering what his next move is going to be. He's not going to stay at River for the rest of his life. If he wanted the national team, he could have had it by now. So I think he's holding out for a big European club job. There's even been some chatter about Barcelona if they got rid of Valverde. That might be a bit too ambitious. I know Sampaoli, when he left South America, went to Sevilla. I think Gallardo's probably looking at something on that level. And then the flip side of the coin, coaching-wise... You know, there was such a fuss made about Daniele De Rossi going to Boca Juniors. Turned out to be much to do about nothing. He's been a non-factor. Actually, the most consequential European going to South America development this year was Jorge Jesus taking over at Flamengo in the middle of the year. Uh, a lot of skepticism in the Brazilian media at the time, but he's done an incredible job. They are running away with the Brazilian league. They're in their first Libertadores final in 38 years. They're playing some of the best football a Brazilian club has played since, you might have to go back to like mid-90s Palmeiras, early 90s Sao Paulo. Uh, they're playing so well, in fact, that Tim Vickery is already banging the drum that if Flamengo win this game, uh, they actually could go toe-to-toe with Liverpool at the Club World Cup. Uh, and one note on that, the last time Flamengo won the Libertadores in 1981, Zico and company then went to Tokyo and smashed Liverpool 3-0 in the Intercontinental Cup. So there is a historical precedent, but that's me getting way ahead of myself. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to this final. Like I said, it's a dream matchup, River against Flamengo. I think it's going to be a very exciting game. I can't wait.
Masi, before we go, my last question to you is this. We remember Pitti Martinez and, and the Copa Libertadores type of storefront that uh, was for him as it re- with regards to Major League Soccer and American and Canadian soccer. Is there anybody or uh, uh, several uh, players that have any potential of being that type of player that we should watch out for if you were an MLS team and you were scouting and, and given the history and you know you know the money and the and the attraction that now holds when it comes to coming to major league soccer well it's it's funny one note on Pitti martinez i was watching the uh post game show on uh, uh being after they uh, River Plate uh, booked their place in the final, and they were lauding Gallardo on how he was able to reinvent the team without Pitti Martinez. You forget because of his struggles at MLS how important he was to River Plate. Yep. Last yep. year, that the, the whole talking point in, in, in Argentina is wow, how the fact that they were able to overcome the absence of Pitti Martinez and get back to the final. Yeah, Fl- Flamengo is a really interesting team because they've got a lot of guys that uh, went to Europe, failed, uh, but are still relatively young and are playing well. So it's it's been interesting to see guys like Gerson in the midfield, Gabigol up front, even Bruning Hickey, uh was a little bit older. So it's going to be interesting to see what the next move is for those guys. Are they going to stay in, in Flamengo for a while? Do they want to go back to Europe? Or would they look kindly potentially at a move to MLS? Um so, yeah, I mean, Flamengo also have this 17-year-old phenom, Hainier, who I mentioned last week, who didn't get released for the Under-17 World Cup. Uh, but he's a, a guy that's already attracting attention from the Real Madrids and Barcelonas, and I think uh, he's ticketed for a move like that. I don't see him coming to MLS. But, uh, yeah, from the Flamengo side of it, uh, yeah, those are the guys I would look at uh, for sure. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll keep an eye on it as we go forward because, uh, you know, this, this has happened, and MLS does have more money now uh, to spend, and, and teams are willing to spend it, and they are— scouring the earth and in particular down in that neck of the woods to find uh, some potential stars either to uh, sell a lot of tickets and win a lot of games and or to uh, sell on for uh, future profits going forward. All right, Mossy, well done again. Uh, Yet another uh, Mossy makes the case. We'll uh, look forward to next week and what you have for us uh, next week. Moving on. Ask Alexi. Time for Ask Alexi. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms. You send us your comments, your questions, your concerns, and we pick out a few and we read them on air as we're about to do right now. Mossy, what are the people screaming and yelling about this week? First up, at Andrew O'Malley 12, if the over-under is five on number of World Cups before we make a semifinal, where's your money, sir? I assume he's talking about the U.S. men's national team. Yeah, I would, I would assume that's the uh, men's national team. That's a, that's a safe assumption. Okay, I think that's over under. I will still take the so I mean that's five. Yeah, I'll I'll still take the under, right? That means that I I, I lose track. I I don't. How does the betting it's, work? Uh, you know it's, better than it's than awkward I do. the way he formulated the question. But you, you do foresee if you were a betting man, the U.S. getting to a World Cup semifinal in the relatively near future, next twenty years, next four or five World Cups. You you think that that could happen? Yeah, I mean, it, it were a handball away in 2002, so absolutely. And and I'm not letting the recent struggles impact to the extent that I'm that I that I can't possibly see that happening because I feel that's just so much uh, to go. Not at all. No. So I'm I'm taking the under. Absolutely, Andrew O'Malley, 12. If that's your real name, I take the under on five. Go ahead. I have to say, uh, this question did make me reflect on the last 17 years. People forget this now, but in the summer of 2002, when, as you mentioned, the U.S. did have that run to the quarterfinals, they lost a match to Germany in which they were the better team. They got victimized by 
a horrible call. Hugh Dallas, Torsten Frings. The widely held opinion coming out of that World Cup was that that was the breakthrough moment. The U.S. had arrived on the world stage. Moving forward, the U.S. would become a legitimate contender to win World Cups, beginning with the next one in 2006. And then the U.S. proceeded to win only two matches across the next three World Cups and then not even qualify in 2018. And I would say the U.S.'s standing as a soccer nation hasn't really moved forward that much since 2002, which I think, A, is an indictment on the program for sure, but also speaks to how difficult it is to crack soccer's lead, which is something that people in this country may be underestimated. There was so much progress, your generation from 1990 to 2002, that I think people expected it to just keep moving forward in a straight line, and it's kind of halted a little bit. So I agree with you. I would go with the under, I think it w- it will happen, but you know it's not a given because boy, it is hard to crack that sort of elite of the sport. Yeah, it's not a given. And even though we point to 2002, in the same way that we probably weren't as good as 2002 made us, we also weren't as bad as you know, I don't know 1998 made us. You know, I was par- I was part of that. And there's there's things that happen that can impact a team. And, there's, and it doesn't necessarily need to be an illustration of how good or bad any, any, anybody is. You know, have, having said that, yeah, it's difficult. You could have the best team and the best collection of players ever, and the ball can bounce here or there, or a referee can do this or that, or VAR can, can, change, can change something. And it doesn't, once again, it doesn't mean that you are good or bad for, uh, for that matter. But I do see in the next 20, 24 years... Absolutely, that moment coming, coming, and the soccer gods and everything smiling and everything kind of happening, in in a way that puts us into that rarefied air. But it puts us into that rarefied air momentarily. It's it shouldn't necess- It doesn't. Well, it's not necessarily like you said in two thousand two. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are finally elite when that when that happens. That's the that's the, what we've done. Is the it's, I, I know this isn't a good word, but what we've done is the easy work. Making up that amount of ground that quickly, that's easy. What's the hard work is that last little piece. That's always the hardest in terms of developing and growing for anything that you do in life. You can make up a lot of space very, very quickly just by being more more organized and in, in a sports perspective, being uh, more fit, whatever it ends up being, you can make up a tremendous amount of uh, of space. But then that last little bit that separates the good from the great, that's the hardest part. And we have, we have yet to do that from a consistent basis. But it doesn't mean that we won't have those blips where we do venture into that elite territory. But we always seem to fall back down from that as opposed to stay there or at least get closer to there each and every time. What, what did you make of uh, Berhalter's letter to uh, the U.S. fans? Ah, yes. So you know, Greg Berhalter, uh, obviously coming off a horrible loss for the team and for him in particular, and who who has taken the brunt of the criticism and rightly so. So he's the head coach, uh, and he's a head coach coming off of that incredible disaster of not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, uh, losing to Canada. So he felt the need uh, to write a letter, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he wrote a letter to the American Outlaws, the supporters group for the U.S. men's national team, in which he apologized uh, for the performance. He apologized for not uh, acknowledging them in Toronto from a from a physical perspective and going over there. And, you know, he doesn't really talk in detail about what happened or what should have happened but didn't happen. 
but I think it's much more about, I think he's putting all his eggs into this second Canada game and talking about how anything less than a win will not suffice. And that's, that's powerful there. You know, that he's apologizing, that's, that's great and all, but we all know that this comes down to, it doesn't really come down to who you are, how good a person you are, how likable you are. It comes down to winning and losing. And, but that he has put in writing, that, and I'll only read this one sentence because it's one that stood out to me. One thing that we will not accept from our team is anything but the determination, effort, and absolute will to win. It is the essence of our country uh, and our team. The next stop on this journey is Orlando, where we will face Canada again, and where only a win will suffice. But So what if they don't win? <laughs> I mean, is I, I think he's, I love it. I love the fact that he is putting the pressure on himself and on his team that it's all or nothing against Canada and to kind of rectify the situation and put it back on track. But what happens if this team doesn't win? And the... This is this right now. I think it's at an all-time low in terms of the confidence level people have of uh, Greg Berhalter and this U.S. team finding a way to win uh, against Canada in the United States. I happen to believe that they're going to go out there and they are going to not only win, but it's going to be emphatic. And it's not as if happy days are here again, but they will right the ship at least for the time being. And it segues nicely into the next question at Sam Puente. Wants to know thoughts on the hire of Tab Ramos by the Houston Dynamo. I say it segues nicely because uh, when folks criticized uh, U.S. soccer's coaching search that led to Greg Berhalter being appointed, they express incredulity that certain names were not interviewed. And Tab is often mentioned in that. He's guided the U.S. Uh, under 20s to the quarterfinals of the last three uh, U20 World Cups. So what do you make of this hire? Tab, by the way, uh, historical note, the first player ever to sign with Major League Soccer. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think of this move, uh, this appointment from the Dynamo's perspective? And also, do you think Tab merited more consideration uh, to be the U.S. senior coach? And do you think not getting interviewed perhaps contributed to him deciding now to leave the program and to try his luck in MLS? Oh, I think Tab Ramos saw the writing on the wall. And this is only from the outside. First off, I have a lot of time for Tab Ramos. I I love him as a person. Obviously, I've played with him. I've known him for years. I think he is an incredibly intelligent human being, but also an incredibly intelligent coach and recognizer of talent. One thing that he has not been is a professional coach. And this is a, this is, so this is a departure for him. I'm glad he's getting his opportunity that it didn't come sooner from a professional perspective is you know, interesting, but he had a really good gig for a long time and did a very good job uh, with uh, with U.S. soccer. This is the first time he'll be dealing with with pros in the capacity of being a coach, and it's very different than developing and dealing with young players and players that aren't doing this for a living. So, and he's got his work cut out for him. But Houston, let's be honest, if even if it's okay, it's better than what has been in the past. So he's got the great opportunity there to. Turn that or uh, turn that around. What now? What it says for U.S. soccer? That's different. Like I said, I think he saw that U.S. soccer was moving in a different direction, and that d- direction didn't have him. For what reason? I don't know, but I'm sure the people there uh, can explain why they uh, they didn't want him. I would have had no problem with Tab Ramos being the head coach of the national team. I would have had no problem with Peter Vermes being the national team. I also have no problem with Greg uh, Berhalter being the, uh, the coach of the national team. Any one of those three, I would have... I would have been fine. They're they are they are qualified. I know for a fact that they are that they are talented, uh, and I think that they all could get the job done. Remains to be seen now uh, with Greg and what uh, and what's going to happen. But as far as 
U.S. soccer, you know, they lose a, as I said, a smart and talented mind and person that could help them. Now, did they drive him out? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I haven't talked to Tab about it. I haven't talked to anybody about it. But they got to make sure, just like any case, if you have someone that's talented and they leave you, you better have somebody that you believe is as talented or more talented to come in and replace them. And if U.S. soccer doesn't have that, then that's a problem. That's a, that's a huge problem. And I will give them the benefit of the doubt because... Uh, this should not have been a surprise to them. He has been someone that MLS teams, when looking for a coach, would automatically have as a potential candidate. So they gotta they gotta figure it out right now over there at, at U.S. Soccer if this is a loss or if this is a loss that is going to be filled by someone that they believe is better. And just and that's the most important. They have to believe it. I don't necessarily have to believe it. Others don't have to necessarily believe it. But in leadership and in an organization, you have to believe that what you're doing is for the good of the organization and do it. And in this case, they seem to have done it and they need to replace him with somebody that's better. And uh, finally, at Matt in Tampa, thinking of players who you knew that what they were going to do, but you were powerless to stop it. Example, Precky cutting back to his left foot. Any others with the signature move that you knew was coming but couldn't stop? All right, so when it came to Precky, uh, just so people that, that don't know, Precky was uh, a wonderful player. He's now been a coach for multiple MLS teams and continues to uh, to coach in, in Major League Soccer. Just an incredible talent, left-footed talent. So think Carlos Vela. Think Mosala. Uh, to a certain, not, don't, I mean, from a left-footed perspective, maybe you think about Messi, but think of those guys that would, as left-footers, would set up on the right side in order to cut in on their, uh, on their left foot. And what he did so well was establish, and it was really like painting a, a, a picture and, and then zigging and zagging. He would establish, because you all knew who Precky was at that left foot, he would establish that he's coming inside to his left foot, which meant that as, uh, in defending him, you had to cover that, that movement inside because he will just shoot, and his precision meant that he could curl it around to that far post. So you have to, you have to guard for that. But then what he would do was cut it back, and it would almost, you would almost hear him say, I cut you, I cut you, I cut you, I cut you. And he was incredible with this chop back onto his right foot that then set up his left foot again. And so you, you knew that the chop was coming, but you couldn't have enough time and space to deal with it because you were so worried about that left foot when he was coming in to shoot. So, you know, that's the type of thing that we were talking about when Precky had. And it was at times unstoppable because he was so good. He wasn't the strongest. He certainly wasn't the fastest, but from, when it came to his understanding of how his body worked and the advantage of being left-footed because the calculation, the, the normal calculation and the, the dominant calculation is for right-footers, he had an advantage in that. So that's what Precky was. The only per the other person that comes to mind from an American perspective is Kobe Jones. Very, very different player than someone like Precky. But Kobe Jones would string himself out there on the right-hand side. And I played on teams with Kobe, and we would practice this and know this. And he would get it on the right-hand side, and his, his center of gravity was so low and his weight distribution was so good that he would shift. He would put the ball on his left foot on the right-hand side, face up to the defender, uh, with the sideline behind him, 
and he would drag the ball with his left foot to create that separation to be able to cross the ball. And you knew it was coming. There wasn't any over the top of the ball or, or movement or anything like that. It was just a simple weight transference, left foot to the right foot cross. And everybody in the box timed it because you knew nine times out of 10, there was a cross coming because it didn't matter how great a defender you were, you were almost powerless to stop it. So that was a signature move of, uh, of Kobe's. I don't know if he ever named it or did anything like that, but we would always joke about the drag that Kobe had. And whether when you're playing with him, it was great because you could time it. For example, if you watch, you can find it on YouTube, I scored a goal against Argentina in Copa America in 1995. And Kobe Jones gets the ball out wide. And I'm, I, it was a recirculation from a corner kick. And I'm still in the box. And I timed everything off of that drag that he had with his left foot that then results in the, in the cross it, it into me. And I put it in the back of the net. I played against him. It was so difficult to defend. And you almost had to say, all right, we know the cross is coming. So we're better off just defending the cross as opposed to trying to block the cross and dealing with uh, dealing with Kobe. So there's, there's an example there, Matt, in Tampa of a signature type of move. I know there's millions of, there, uh, of them out there, but that was the one that came to mind. Uh, first of all, I hope uh, Kobe didn't name any of his moves. That would be a little bit weird, but... Uh, <laughs> I didn't have... I, didn't, I definitely didn't have any moves, and I didn't name anything. <laughs> I would say, uh, I think you'll agree, the all-time example from an international level is Ian Robin. <laughs> Who's made a whole career of kind of cutting yes, into that go. left foot, and go. yet nobody could go. stop it for all these years. So, and that whole and that whole look, the, you know, the whole Cru- the Cruyff move and and that kind of stuff that came into uh, to play, and then the you know the heel cutback that uh, Cristiano he didn't invent it, but he he you know. Uh, modernized it, I get, and brought it to the masses in terms of that stuff that you now see time and time again, especially wingers do, where they, they go down the line and then they cut it back with the with their back heel and, and then go from there. So like there's, there's a lot of moves out there. And I think it just highlights that you know, someone like Kobe or, or Precky or something like that, while they were incredible players, you also, sometimes you just need to dumb it down and recognize what you're good at. And if you stick to that, it doesn't matter if the defender, the opposition, the entire stadium knows what you're going to do. Sometimes it's just it's just done so well and with such efficiency that it's impossible uh, for uh, any individual player or collection of players to defend against it. That's it. All right, Mossy. Uh, thanks for the questions out there. Like I said, use that hashtag AskAlexi and send it to us uh, on all the different... Uh, social media platforms out there, and uh, we may pick one of your questions, comments, or concerns in future episodes of the State of the Union. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for the uh, Back Three when we look at some big stories and games and moments in the world of soccer out there. What are we looking at this week, Mossy? Well, we begin, how could we not, with Christian Pulisic. Uh, We mentioned last week that this situation was trending in the right direction. He had had some very good substitute appearances. So Frank Lampard rewarded him with a start this past weekend against Burnley, his first start since August. And what does he do? He goes out and scores a hat-trick in a 4-2 win, becoming the second American ever to score a hat-trick in a Premier League game. Clint Dempsey did it for Fulham. Just an incredible performance. Uh, What did you make of it? It was wonderful. Uh, I was so happy for him. I was so happy to see a Christian Pulisic be rewarded for being selfish. And I know sometimes selfishness has negative connotation, but when you're an attacking player, you want your attackers to be selfish. Not at the expense of others, necessarily, but 
to within that selfishness is a confidence and a belief that I think was missing for a while. And for whatever reason, could be, I don't know, could be anything. He came out in that game and was going to force the issue in a way that we haven't see him, uh, seen him do it in the past. And when you do that, good things happen. So even, you know, the goal, one of the goals he scored was a deflection. But he forced the issue, drove at the space, took the shot, and was rewarded with that deflection that went in the back, uh, the back of the net. By the way, it was a natural hat trick. Uh, left foot, right foot, and off the head. The guy's even scoring off his head off a corner kick. Wonderful flick. Uh, it made me made me so proud to see on that set piece for him to flick it off the back of his head into the into the far corner. This is good because this plants yet another seed in the mind of Frank Lampard that this is a player you can count on, that this is a player that not that is not going to shrivel up and fall away at the first sign of challenge. This also shows a lot of the detractors out there and the people that are skeptical about Christian Pulisic that this guy can, uh, can contribute, and he's forcing the issue. And every coach wants that. Every coach wants to have problems on his or her hand in terms of selection and wants to have players nipping at the ass of other players that may or may not be ahead of them to get ahead of them. And 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 that type of reaction was great to it was great to see. From an American's perspective, yes, I am incredibly happy that this guy who you know uh, had an incredible price tag lived up to it in that moment. But, you know, as I said it in my instant reaction that we had you know, Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? This will very quickly fade if you're not able to parlay it, if you're not able to continue to give good performance. I'm not saying you have to score a hat trick every single game, but continue to prove your worth and your value to people on the outside and to people on the inside, whether it's your coach and Frank Lampard or the other players that are looking at you. And it will be it will be begrudging in terms of the worth that they give you because they'll be competing, some, some of them directly for your position. But you got to have that ability to be brutal and to be ruthless in what you're doing. And I saw a little bit of that ruthlessness come out. And I don't think we last time we saw it probably I don't know was early on in the in the Dortmund salad days that he had, right, Mossy? Yeah, you know what really struck me was we've seen this with Liverpool fans and Klopp in recent years, and you're seeing it now with Chelsea and Lampard. When a fan base is in the midst of a love affair with a manager, they always adopt the most positive interpretation possible of every situation. And all I've heard the last two days is that Lampard handled this incredibly well because Pulisic was still adapting and he waited for the perfect time to unleash him. And it was leaving him out of all those games that made this performance possible because it motivated Pulisic to improve on what he needed to work on. Maybe, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's also worth pointing out the other side of it. If you remove that League Cup game against Grimsby Town, prior to this weekend, in Chelsea's eight previous Premier League slash Champions League games, Pulisic had played a grand total of 63 minutes. So you had a player who was capable of doing this when you finally started him. Is it fair to wonder if maybe he should have been playing more in those other games? Now, to be fair, Chelsea were winning a lot of those games, so that's why there was no complaining. They're on fire now. They've won seven in a row in all competitions. They're solidly in the top four. They're four points clear of Arsenal, who are an absolute dumpster fire. So that's why you know people are going to give Lampard the benefit of the doubt here. But it is kind of funny how when things are going good, everybody puts the most positive spin on every situation as it relates to the manager. Look, Mossy, Mossy, I, I, in no way, shape, or form do I believe that this is 
orchestrated and calculated from either Frank Lampard or any of the higher ups there. Oh, this is exactly way, the way they, they they drew it up, and this is how it was planned, and we we break you down to build you ba- back up. No, no, this is this is just a good player getting an opportunity, possibly a great player, but certainly a good player, getting an opportunity to show what he can do and having a day when things went well. And, you know, you'll take the credit and you also take the situation because it's good. This is good for Christian Pulisic. This is good for Chelsea. This is good for Frank Lampard. This is good for Greg Berhalter and the U.S. national team. And it and it it, it bears celebrating. And, it, and, it, and you should find some joy, even if you hate Chelsea, you can at least find some joy that this player who has had a difficult adjustment to a new team and a new country and new culture found a moment to grasp onto. And sometimes sometimes you need that. And I hope that this is that moment where he can hold on to it. And more importantly, he can kick on from it and do bigger and better things going forward. Uh, by one note on the weekend in Europe, I have no other place to put this, so I'll awkwardly jam it here. Uh, originally, Barcelona <laughs> were scheduled to host Real Madrid this weekend. That match was postponed because there are violent protests going on in Barcelona right now relating to the whole Catalan independence movement. Uh, Barcelona were given the option to move the match to Madrid. They said no. So now the first Clásico of the season will be played sometime in December. And I have to say, I know we live in this... Uh, Premier League-obsessed country where most people probably could care less. But I felt it. Uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid are the two teams I follow the most closely. Anybody that's listened to this podcast the last year and a half can probably figure that out. And it was a little bit bizarre and eerie not having them this weekend. I was kind of flipping the channel. Wait, wait where's the Barcelona game? Where When did Real Madrid play? Uh, so it, it shined even more of a light on, obviously, the Bundesliga that we cover and the Premier League. And, and Pulisic you know, had this incredible performance. So there you have it. Moving forward, more good news for U.S. national team fans. This was a late add to the rundown because this news, we're taping this on a Monday, it broke today. Serginho Dest has decided to represent the United States of America. Uh, How positive a development is this, him choosing the U.S. over the Netherlands? Look, this is a undeniable talent who is starting and starring at Ajax and playing in Champions League and someone that... Obviously, Greg Berhalter or many teams, including the Netherlands, would want to have as part of their team. And that it was going back and forth between the Netherlands and, and the U.S. And this is a, this is a bit of good news that, that should be seen as such for uh, Greg Berhalter, for Ernie Stewart, for U.S. soccer, for the men's national team. Because this is a player that, that can help that can help us get back to where we want to be, but more importantly, get even get even further. The decision is made. He is going to play for the U.S. If he steps on the field against Canada uh, in a few weeks, that is an official competition, and therefore it will be done. We know that he was he, he didn't get called into the last couple of uh, Nations League games, so if he steps on the field, uh, it's done. I don't want to, and I don't think this, this will happen, I don't want to treat this situation or this player as if he is doing a favor for U.S. soccer or the U.S. men's national team. I think that that's doing a disservice to the player and doing a disservice uh, to the team. But you can be happy, and you not that you need my permission, but I think you should, should be happy and you should celebrate that a very talented player has picked the U.S. Uh, for his future. It's been done in the past. But this is a player that can start. Now, whether he starts at the left-back position or the right-back position, at least it gives Greg Berhalter another quality talent to put on the field. And right now, let's be honest, 
Greg Berhalter needs as many talented players as possible, but he's going to be judged just like everybody else. And just because this has happened doesn't mean he's an automatic starter. Just because this has happened doesn't mean that uh, he's beyond criticism. And just because he's uh, has made this decision doesn't mean that there are others that maybe not are, are are not as high profile that might turn Greg Berhalter's eye and be and be better for the team. This is all conjecture. We've seen him play a little bit, but this is all also he's still very young. This is also you know, extrapolating out. He's here now. What's he going to be in a few years? And that's that's all great. But it. I, you know, I've seen it so many times where we build up a player and then things change, either to the player or what surrounds the player or time marches on and uh, a million different things can impact it. So this is, this is a good thing. This is a feather in the cap of Ernie Stewart uh, and Greg Berhalter in a moment when they, <laughs> they need as many feathers as they possibly can get. Yeah, it's interesting. Those last two Nations League games, we said this at the time on the pod, kind of forced upon him a decision that he wasn't ready to make yet because those were competitive matches. They would have cap tied him. But when he turned down that call, a lot of people interpreted it as being a terrible development. And the more you hear now, he was still leaning towards the U.S., but he just needed a little bit more time to ruminate on it. And the two things the U.S. always had going for them was the fact that he's played his whole youth career with the U.S. in under-17 and under-20 World Cups. And also, let's be honest, I know it's a bit of a backhanded compliment, but the whole issue of playing time. It sounds like you read now that a determining factor was him looking at the depth charts for the U.S. and the Netherlands and concluding that he has a better chance of being picked regularly and playing in World Cups for the U.S. than he does in the Netherlands. So uh, that ended up being something that swayed him towards the U.S. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. I don't think that this was a, in this particular case, I don't think that this was a mercenary type of player or decision because you mentioned there is a history I think that there's an affinity I think that there's an understanding I think that there's a comfort level that Ernie Stewart and Greg Berhalter obviously played upon in and that's what you have to do but just as your blue chip uh, recruits and your, uh, your your heralded type of recruits have that moment and signing moment and everybody's excited and then they come into camp and that's when reality hits and he certainly has the tools to be able to uh, to function when that happens. Um, but he's it's good that he's it's good that he's a player, and I hope to see him on the field for many many years doing good things at one of those right or left back positions, depending on where Greg Berhalter sees him. Yeah, and the way he announced his decision did feel very much like a high school football or basketball player pledging to a college. I've talked about this before. These dual citizenship situations do take on a little bit of a kind of dynamic of like a college recruitment. So yeah, I, I do. I did sense that as well. We'll end on this. Actually, breaking news as we're taping this podcast, we were prepared to come on and say that it was imminent that the U.S. was going to hire Vladko Andonovsky as its next women's coach, succeeding Joe Ellis. But uh, just minutes ago, they tweeted out that it's official, so he is the next U.S. women's national team coach. Andonovsky, the NWSL coach of the year this past year with Rain FC, which is Megan Rapinoe's team. Uh, So he takes over now. What do you make of this appointment? And also, what do you make of this coaching search compared to the men's one, which, as we mentioned earlier, was was remains very controversial. Well, I think that in this case, Kate Margraf will be given the benefit of the doubt because she's 
the coaching search, I don't think it's going to come, come under that much scrutiny. Let's be honest. We don't know what the coaching, coaching search was yet. We will, we will find out. And Kate publicly had come out with names even before she, she announced the job, even in her, in her capacity working on television, had talked about potential uh, replacements. And uh, as I've said before, uh, Vlako comes with wonderful credentials in terms of his success, in soccer, in the women's game. I know that he had lots of support from the players, not just that played for him or have played for him, but even players that haven't played for him within the national team. And it was made very clear that this U.S. women's national team wanted a male coach for whatever for whatever reason. This was going to be a significant change and an important change given what this team has done over the last two cycles and what Jill Ellis did. And whoever came in, and in this case it's Vladko, was going to have their hands full. And it's it's difficult. I mean, in, a, in essence, you're kind of coming in like you're coming in after Fergie or something like, uh, something like that, where you have to, you can't get any better. I guess you can only, you can only get worse. And, that, you know, that's going to be a challenge. The first challenge is, is going to be, what that team is going to look like next summer in the Olympics. And I'm going to get the chance to sit down with Vladko because I'll be in Columbus for their upcoming, the U.S. women's upcoming game against Sweden. I'll be really interested to find out what his plans are for this team and in particular what his plans are for next summer. And if he uses next summer more of a betting in type of process and a, an adjustment and change type of tournament than it has been used in the past. Or does he say, look, this is the first opportunity to rectify a wrong in that they didn't win gold last time around, and they're going all guns blazing yet again um, going forward. So congratulations uh, to him. I'm glad that this is over. We'll find out more about how this all went down and what his vision is for this team. I mean, he's taken over a, a, a incredibly fine-tuned machine here that is the women's national team, and he's going to have to put his imprint on it and how much or little you adjust or tinker with that is really the question uh, when you are handed this gift of the U.S. women's national team with all the talent that exists, but also all the talent that uh, exists when it comes to depth and potential talent that is out there and and having that talent become, of, become part of this uh, team going forward. Mossy, what are your thoughts? Anything? Well, on the topic of uh, women's soccer, congratulations to the North Carolina Courage, who this past weekend won their second straight NWSL title, uh, thumping Chicago 4-0 in the final. A triumphant farewell for our colleague from this past summer, Heather O'Reilly. This was her final professional match, and she will now go on to become an assistant coach with the North Carolina Tar Heels. So uh, congrats, Heather. Yes, absolutely congrats. Uh, she went out, I mean, if she could, I don't think you could write a better outro, if you will, to a career, and you look at the list of accolades that she has had and what she has won over the years, whether it's at the club level, whether it's the international level, or whether it's the college level. Uh, and as I told her the other day, now your real life begins. And that's what I tell all the, uh, the players who finish up their career. Now the real life begins. There is a life beyond kicking the ball, and it can be a wonderfully fulfilling life. It's a very different life, and there is an adjustment period, but she's already well on her way with uh, the work that she did with us over the summer, as you mentioned, working uh, with uh, with Fox during the Women's World Cup. So if that's something she wants to do, certainly that's there. And I know she's uh, continuing on in a uh, in a coaching capacity going forward. So best of luck and congratulations to a, a true U.S. Women's National Team uh, legend in uh, in Heather O'Reilly over there. Anything else, Mossy? 
Well, I'll end on this uh, for me. Rough start for the U.S. in the under-17 World Cup in Brazil this past weekend. Uh, they suffered a 4-1 defeat to Senegal uh, in the opener. Next up for them, Wednesday against Japan. That match is on FS2. It sets up a nice little night of soccer on Fox Sports because you've got the U.S. under-17s playing on FS2. And then around the same time, the MLS game that you're in Atlanta to cover, which is on FS1, Atlanta against Toronto in the Eastern Conference Final. Yes, I am. And uh, that's where we'll end it here because we have come to the end of yet another uh, podcast, our one big thing from uh, today's podcast. Uh, although we didn't mention it that much, uh, I am in here here in Atlanta for uh, the playoff game between Atlanta and Toronto. And it got me thinking about this, this concept that I have, <laughs> for better or worse, championed for so many years, the, uh, the notion of the super club and the existence of a super club. And I recognize uh, in, in Major League Soccer, and I recognize how specifically because it's Major League Soccer, it makes it that much more difficult because of the restrictions and the rules regarding what you can and cannot do. And somebody asked me uh, today as I was flying out from Los Angeles about things that you see in the future and changes that can happen in the professional game, and in particular in Major League Soccer. And I, I've always talked about the necessity, I believe, for super clubs. And while I love the parody and the unique aspects that the parody, the manufactured parody, give to uh, to the viewer and to the player and to the coach and to everybody that's involved when it comes to Major League Soccer, you know, the reality is that I do think that going forward, uh, and especially the year when the CBA is coming up, but I think just in terms of thinking forward, that MLS at some point is going to have to give teams the ability to make their own decisions and spend what they want and the ability to let themselves loose to go forward and in doing so maybe even to the detriment of other teams which I know runs counter to everything that Major League Soccer was founded upon in terms of the single entity and the manufactured parity and the collective being the most important but and I've mentioned this before from a, from a TV broadcast perspective Super clubs play, uh, clubs that as many people hate as love, clubs that transcend, clubs, clubs that make news and therefore bring in the casual viewer. That's important, uh, and I think that's important going forward. And I'll be really, really interested to see if that happens, given the ability to do things that have been restricted in the past, if that does make the league as a whole better, or if in tearing down what the league was established on, that hurts it. I don't think it will hurt it, and I'm looking forward to a future when the individual talent that all these clubs have are given the ability to go out there and do things that they haven't had the ability to do in the past. And it doesn't mean that there aren't uh, restrictions, and it doesn't mean that you're just going out to spend money to spend money. You still have to be smart in the money that you spend. But there are owners and ownership groups in Major League Soccer right now that want to do more, and they are being held back. And they're being held back because it's a structure that they bought into. I completely understand that. But I want to see those restraints be 
either taken off or at the very least loosened much more so than we have had in the past. And I want to see what American soccer looks like and I want to see what Major League Soccer looks like when those constraints are loosened and or completely taken off because I think it can be something special. It still will be uniquely North American or American or Canadian. It will still be different. It will still be something that from the outside may look strange but I think and but I think it can be better. And I think that's one of the things that I want to see happen and I think should happen going forward in the future. Atlanta has already pushed the envelope, which is why I enjoy so much coming to a place like Atlanta and watching Atlanta United do it. I would love to see what Atlanta would be if if this is what they can do with the constraints on. Think what Arthur Blank and Atlanta United could do with those constraints off, or at the very least loosened a tremendous amount. It's fun to think about. I'm not sure it'll happen anytime soon, but uh, I would love to see it happen uh, going forward. Mossy, anything uh, to add before we head out of here? Nope, that's it. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in yet again. Uh, as I said, I am on the road here in Atlanta. I will be back in studio to see all the changes that evidently are taking place back at our uh, studio, all the aesthetic changes uh, that are changing. Uh, we'll see you back in studio, Mossy and the gang out over there on Monday. I will uh, be doing this game here in Atlanta uh, Wednesday night on FS1. Myself, Rob Stone, Marisa Du uh, in the studio. Up in the booth will be John Strong and Stuart Holden. And down on the uh, sideline will be uh, Katie Witham. So the whole crew is here. We're going to have a fun last hurrah, if you will, for the 2019 MLS season because MLS uh, uh, ESPN will be broadcasting MLS Cup. So this will be our final broadcast uh, for this season. It's been a hell of a season on and off the field. We've had a blast bringing it to you. And we're going to go out with a bang here in Atlanta with, who knows, 70,000 people playing against a very, very sneaky Toronto team uh, right now that possibly could that could have uh, Josie Altidore back. All right, check that out on uh, Wednesday night. We will talk uh, again next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please subscribe and review and rate and do all the things that you do out there uh, for the podcast. It, that means the, uh, it means so much to us that you uh, tune in each and every week. All right, size the day. 